Welcome to Hack to Start, a podcast focused on interesting people and the innovative ways they achieve success. I'm Franco Variano. And I'm Tyler Copeland. Each week we speak with a new guest about how they created, hacked, and hustled their way to the top and distill their insights and experiences for you. The path to success isn't always linear. Hack, start, and repeat. This episode is brought to you by Breather. Find beautiful, practical spaces that you can reserve on the go. Ghost, a simple, powerful publishing platform that allows you to share your story with the world. And SoundCloud. Hear the world sounds. You're listening to episode 39 of Hack to Start. This episode features Keneal Joyce, the founder of Kickass Creative. Tyler and I wanted to invite Keneal onto the show to share her insights on why constraints are important to creativity, how to structure and build a solid organization, and why having clear vision is critical to effective growth. Keneal has a PhD in organizational behavior and uses design and psychology to build both amazing products and innovative companies. She shares a lot of her insights on a wide variety of topics that are critical to startups, including why design thinking is important, how to negotiate, and much more. So let's get to it. Hey, Keneal. Thanks for being on the show today. Hey, Tyler. Hey, Franco. So we'd like to start things off by getting to know a bit about yourself. So where are you from? What did you study? And how did your passion for entrepreneurship develop? Uh, sure. So I'm from a beach town in Los Angeles called Manhattan Beach, which has evolved a lot since I left. And I spent about 15 years off and on in the Bay Area. Um, after graduating from UCLA, I moved up there just in time for the dot-com bubble to burst all over my face. (laughs) And (laughs) um, there, it was the worst uh, possible timing really, because I got there um, right after Thanksgiving and thought I'm going to stay with my boyfriend on his couch, you know, on his couch, quote unquote, um, for a couple weeks while I find an apartment, not really knowing what I was getting into uh, because at that time, much like it is right now, it was impossible to find an apartment in San Francisco. People were lining up down the street to get a chance to look at a garage to live in that was being rented as a bedroom. Um, I actually came very close to living in a standalone room that had no bathroom that was in the backyard of somebody's home in the hate. Ashbury District. Um, It was just like impossible to find a house and then also impossible to find a job because the jobs were disappearing like faster than, you know, you could interview for them. So I, I got an awesome job at a, at a, an actual magazine that used to be second in ad sales only to people called the industry standard. And it wrote about startups and they had these awesome rooftop parties and I was going to do marketing for them. And I was so excited. And then the day before I was supposed to start front page of the San Francisco Chronicle, they closed. Um, so I didn't get that job. So it was a series of kind of, um, I guess, preemptive layoffs of um, getting jobs then having them not really come to fruition and I finally got a job in a startup that was in it was a mission-driven startup in a space I care a lot about which was healthcare and finally got my start there but it was like rough going that's awesome people got laid off we always had a party (laughs) always (laughs) so you got your PhD in organizational behavior can you elaborate a bit more on what it is and what are the best types of conflicts for teams 
Sure. So uh, the organizational behavior PhD, um, I I decided to go for a PhD mostly just because I'm really stupid and I didn't have any idea what I was getting into. Um, I was working at the startup for about three years and then I could see kind of the writing on the wall and we were, I could tell we were about to shutter ourselves. So decided I'm going to apply to grad school. I can't really get done here at this company what I want to get done, which was I wanted to change the way that the company innovated. Um, I could see us like running into roadblocks again and again because we were sort of unwilling to see uh, that our business model was really flawed and our product needed to change in order to become a sustainable business and not just a venture-backed startup. And because the venture was going to pull out, you know, you could just see that every board meeting was worse and worse. So I went for a PhD largely to escape the impossible job market of 2003. Um, I moved to Barcelona while I waited for my applications to roll back in. I chose a PhD over a master's because it sounded more impressive and it was supposedly you know, free because they give you a fellowship. Yeah. Um, at, at 24 years old, I was not properly um, valuing the remainder of my 20s, which I did spend in grad school, which was freaking miserable. Um, that, you know, that was like a op major opportunity cost, right? But organizational behavior was very interesting to me because of the startup experience and because I saw, you know, we had all kinds of conflict in that startup. We had a lot of people who cared a lot about what they wanted to get done together. And yet we were, it was getting harder and harder to cooperate. Um, so I wanted to kind of look at that. And organizational behavior is a really cool discipline. Usually it's uh, housed within a business school. It's a fairly new field yeah, in terms of uh, science. So probably you could say it started around the 60s. And it's informed by things like uh, psychology, especially social and cognitive psychology, um, and industrial psychology, and then sociology. Uh, political science, anthropology, um, even epidemiology, and cognitive science. It's cool. So, so a little bit of everything. A little bit of, and that's what I love. Like I love, I love everything on my pizza. I love tasting everything. So it was great. I got to take classes. I was I was at Berkeley at the Haas School of Business, and I got to take classes all over campus. And um, I just didn't realize how many how much statistics was involved in. <laughs> in, in that, but that was so good for me because I was coming from an artistic background. I grew up and spent a lot of time on the stage before I, you know, ages four through twenty, and I'm from a very creative household, and so I I didn't think numbers were ever going to be part of my game. But it turns out, like I really love statistics, and I don't love math, and I'm actually terrible at math, but I really love statistics, and so that was just so lucky because now it's increasingly relevant in, you know, for my career. Yeah. That, that then, was, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I think you asked about conflict. So the, the research shows that there are essentially three kinds of conflict uh, that teams experience. The first is relationship conflict. This is like highly emotional. It's about personal issues. It's basically, I don't like you or... Um, I don't like how you're behaving or you've hurt my feelings yeah, kind of conflict. Everyone's been, been there. 
and that sucks, right? That's that. It's not good for anybody. It's very once you get there on a team, it's very hard to come back from it, and there are a lot of negative consequences to relationship conflict. Then there's process conflict, which is often uh, the the step before you get to relationship conflict. This is conflict like, why do we always have to meet so late at night? Um, let's like, I notice that you're always late to meetings or you're too nitpicky about, uh, you know, the way that, the way that I'm presenting the results, we should be focused on the data. We should be scrappy. Like these kinds of conflicts about how we do our work. Mm -hmm. Um, it's not so much about, about personalities and, and it doesn't have to be emotional. You can certainly have a non-emotional process conflict. Um, but process conflict, it's good to work through it and solve it. Um, it's very bad to let it become relationship conflict. The third kind of conflict, unlike the first two, has been shown to be really, really productive for teams. Um, and that's called task conflict. That's conflict about what are we going to do? So let's say that we are working together in a startup and we're trying to decide how we're going to grow our user base. So we have a conflict about, we have a debate about, um, we want to do paid, paid acquisition. We want to do paid search. We want to do, um, you know, display ads and mobile retargeting and so forth. And then another person feels like, no, you know, I think that for our startup paid is wrong. We should really be going with a totally organic community driven, you know, grassroots type of growth strategy. And we might disagree about that and we could debate it. Now that's a very fruitful debate because as long as it doesn't become emotional and no, there's no personal conflict kind of weaved in, it's, it's a debate that every startup should have. Mm -hmm. You know, what's the right thing for your brand? Which one is most aligned with your value proposition? Which is most aligned with your user base or your, your future user base? So, and then of course, which one can you afford and which one do you have time for? Which are usually the first two <laughs> considerations. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, so that, that kind of conflict is great. It, does, it has a lot of positive benefits. Um, it can bring people closer together and increase group, group cohesion. It increases uh, group creativity. It can hurt your efficiency in the short run, but it, hurts it, but it helps your productivity in the long run for those reasons. So you wrote a, a dissertation on the effects of constraints on creativity. Can you share a bit about the end results that you were able to gather? Sure. So... I was really interested in um, some problems I had been experiencing myself in creative work, kind of difficulty in getting from the ideation stage, you know, having lots and lots of different ideas, very easy for me to come up with lots of ideas. And then, but the hard part was always picking an idea and sticking to it, you know, and, and I think like that is partly just how I'm wired and I've had to just own it. And you can see that in my career, but it's, it's pernicious in the creative process or for any company that's trying to innovate is, is getting to, is, is spreading yourself too thin. Yeah. So I was particularly struggling with this during my PhD because I had to pick one dissertation topic and they were all so fascinating. I mean, it was, you know, taking classes across campus as I described, I would love one idea in sociology and I loved another one in anthropology and I loved another one in psychology and I could see how they all related to each other. And I wanted, it was kind of like, I wanted all of them to be mine. 
And the, the very sad part was I realized I had to pick one and I had to stick to it for the next four years and spend every night and day with it. So I had to find a way to find constraint beautiful. And that like personal challenge that I was grappling with is what made me start investigating the role of constraint on creativity. And what I found after years of research was that there's like an optimal level of constraint. So too little is bad, too much is bad, but a little bit is, is essential for good creative outcomes. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. So in, in the studies I ran, and there, was, there were experiments, I did some archival studies, and I also tracked 62 different new product development teams through their entire innovation process, start that's to finish. Lot, that's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. It's a, it was a lot of data. Um, and I found that when there was too little constraint and just absolute freedom, which you would think would be kind of the most creative state because freedom and, and creativity go together in our minds or in our culture. Um, really, what you often saw happen was, especially in the team setting, every individual keeps marching forward to the beat of their own drum and they can all think they agree. And in fact, they don't. So when it becomes time to actually execute or build a prototype and make the idea concrete, mm -hmm. you find out you had wildly different ideas of what you were trying to do and why. And so the freedom for, some, for, for the individual, sometimes it means you just kind of get lost, you get stuck, you're not sure where to begin. I mean, everyone's had that experience where it's easier to edit than it is to write. But also in the, in the team setting, it means that these like amazingly deep biases get to persist. And the end result is often like you have gotten nothing done together. On the too much constraint side, you see other things like people being rigidly attached to that idea and unable to see um, alternative ways of getting it done. So, you know, in some, in some startups, and I think that the one I was in early in my career was sort of like this, we were not only attached to what we wanted to do in the world, we were really attached to how we wanted to do it. And there were too many like rules or assumptions and constraints like set up in our minds of how we were going to make that startup survive. There was only kind of really one pathway. Yeah. And we weren't sufficiently pivoting uh, to survive. So the, the best level of constraint is a moderate one where you are attached to what the problem you're trying to solve or what your vision is, but you're not attached and you're extremely free and open about how you are going to solve that problem or how you're going to achieve that vision. And I think like the lean startup movement kind of really has helped um, inform a methodology for startups to execute in that way. I think what often gets overlooked is how important it is to have a vision and stick to it. So now that I'm a consultant, I have a very strong preference for working with companies where the founder has a strong um, like mission. Yeah. They, have, they have a couple things they are not willing to compromise on. That's partly because I want to believe in the mission and I, I really don't want to send more crap into the landfill. That's like my number one rule. So I wanna make sure that their business model aligns with my values. But also I found that it is so much easier to make meaningful discoveries and get traction when 
you have a, an anchor point to pivot around. If you don't have an anchor point like a mission or a vision, it's very easy to get swayed by every investor who gives you different advice and every user who has different ideas. Um, and it's hard to make progress, especially doing what I do, which is the product strategy and growth strategy. Absolutely. That's a that's a very important point to make and a huge distinction that uh, I've definitely seen. And, and now that you bring it up, it it uh, makes a lot of it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's good to know. What, it's good to know what your sacred cows are. It's good to have some. So you've taught MBA level classes on organizational change, innovation, new product development, negotiations and leadership. So what were the biggest lessons from the classes on negotiations? Biggest lesson in a negotiation class. <clears throat> the first biggest lesson is negotiate. If you don't ask, you don't get. Second biggest lesson is the one that's a little more meaty, which is that your power comes from your options. A lot of us go into a negotiation and think, I want to do as well as I can in this negotiation. I wonder like, you know, how high of a salary I can get. I wonder how good of a job title I can get, whatever the dimensions are you're negotiating on. And that is a very limiting way to approach a negotiation. Your power in a negotiation always comes from your outside options. And in negotiations, uh, there's a term for this, which is called your BATNA, your B-A-T-N-A. It stands for best alternative to a negotiated agreement. So your BATNA is your power, meaning if I'm going into a job negotiation, I'm talking to Google, I'm much better off in my negotiation with them if I also have offers from Apple and Facebook. If they are my only potential job prospect, I have very little power except for the ability to just not take that job, which is always an option. And that, that, usually, that often is your BATNA, is no agreement, let's walk away, I'll find something else. Depending on what the job market looks like and how sure you are of yourself and your own value, like that may or may not be enough. But if it's, if it's three days before a negotiation, you can read about a company until you're blue in the face. You can sweat your outfit. There's nothing you can do that's more powerful than going out and trying to get another offer. For sure, that's huge. And, and that definitely, you know, kind of applies to startups as well in terms of raising capital and other stuff like that. So, oh, yeah, yeah, that makes yeah. that makes total sense. So you also describe yourself as an idea woman, a design strategist and a startup team builder. And, and we've, we've talked a little bit about, you know, some of that uh, through through different stages of your career so far. But what is it about startups that interests you the most? To me, startups are thrilling. It's there's a an, there's like a visceral thing about you're acting with incomplete information. Resources are scarce. You know, sometimes money is flush and time is scarce or vice versa, or both. Um, the, the number of people you have on board is scarce. So everyone has to work in a really multidimensional, multidisciplinary way. You're working closely together with people who have vastly different skill sets. I love that part. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of risk involved, although a lot less than there used to be. Uh, and the constant change is the name of the game. Um, intellectually, what's fascinating to me about startups is that, especially in the early stage, everything you do to take action needs to also be something you do in order to learn. So one of, one of the things I do with startups is I do growth consulting. So I help them grow their user base. Um, a lot of my focus is on what will make people refer their friends. 
So what will make you share, share content with your friends or invite them to join or, um, you know, post, post content to a social network. So, you know, virality basically Mm -hmm. within the product. And there is no point in just trying everything that could work um, or in just trying to get as many shares and likes as you can get. And it, a smart way to approach growth is, is that every tactic, every tactical move you do is also an experiment, which is informing a larger strategy. So it's very much like science in that way. It's, um, there's a, a larger theory that you are constantly evolving, but you can never really test a theory. You can just test hypotheses that would be true if the theory were true. And so I kind of think of it in that way with those levels. I love like the intellectual piece. I love, I love the interpersonal piece. I love the, to me, it's the most creative thing you can do. I mean, it takes, it takes advantage of every part of you and it also exposes every one of your weaknesses. Go startup. (laughs) Absolutely. Startups (laughs) startups are the best. They are, they are that thrilling rush that you described. So you actually led growth at, at, uh, in creativity at uh, Brightly. Um, so, so what is Brightly and, and how did you get, get in there with, with that group and, and what did you do to approach growth and creativity? So Brightly was um, a company that had just, before they hired me, did a complete restart, which is like uh, a pivot times a pivot times a pivot. Um, <laughs> they completely turned off a profitable business and wiped the slate clean and said, this is not what we want to do with our lives. Let's see if we can reinvent something together using the team that we have here. So what, what they had before was um, it was profitable, but the it had kind of like evolved far away from a mission that anybody cared about. Right before I started with them, they had moved into this uh, user-generated content space, which in 2009 was like a really big deal. Like Pinterest had just come out. Uh, Viddy was this really quickly growing rocket ship video app. Um, Facebook had had opened up Open Graph and you saw all of this activity in users are going to make all the content of the future and um, we wanted to make this sort of content engine and platform um, where the number of users was the most important metric. So they brought me on in part to figure out how do we get people to be creative on this platform? How do we build a product that's going to have the right amount of constraint to make it easy to make uh, new content and share it with the world? And then also, and like intrinsically linked with that, was the growth piece. Uh, So Brightly was in search of of product market fit the whole time I was there. Um, We pivoted four times in six months. Um, which was a real testament to our team and how quick our engineers were and how decisive our amazing founder was, um, Val Agostino, who's now, uh, just today actually on TechCrunch, you can read about his new startup, uh, which is called Work Life. He was a fantastic leader through this whole entire process. I learned so much from him. But we, when I say we pivoted four times, I mean we built an entirely new product. We didn't just shift who we were focusing on. It was like, let's take down the last product and put up a new one instead. And each iteration was based on what we learned in the iteration before. So mostly we we had this thesis about, you know, with the rise of mobile, it opens up these little um, 30 second time slices, like, you know, waiting for a train or, um, 
in between phone calls or, you know, while you're on a phone call that weren't available before and people are into consuming like visual content. And so we wanted to make a content creation and consumption platform that was like really optimized for that mobile visual short time slice experience. So we went through a number of kind of magazine like iterations around there. The last iteration was definitely my favorite. And that was sort of like a visual, a super visual version crowdsourced of Evernote. And then we were acquired. That's and awesome. Um, we were acquired by Groupon. Groupon bought everything. So um, they own the product and the team and all the toilet paper and everything. <laughs> so we, so the product no longer exists anymore. Um, and I really miss it. But it was a good, it was definitely a good move for the company and the team. And um, a lot of our developers are still there. So what was the process of going through kind of an acquisition with, with Groupon kind of like? It was fascinating. We had several acquisition offers and they were well-timed. You know, there were, we had, we got to consider most of them side by side next to each other. And so the process was a little different for each acquiring company. And I, I probably shouldn't reveal every company that we were talking to, um, but they were a lot of uh, great ones mm-hmm. that are, you know, we're really at that right stage where right around now they'd be IPOing. So for some of them, they would bring the whole team over and we'd all have like a dinner party together or um, we'd go to the office and then we got broken up into, you know, either like small teams or individuals and we'd interview with people like, you know, (laughs) like in a row, like 30 minutes, hour, 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 30 minutes um, with different parts of their team. Uh, or the founder would just come over and try to pitch us. And we must have had pretty serious interest from like five or six different potential acquirers, um, which for a startup of our size was really great. But we had fantastic investors, uh, Bessemer, NEA. We had amazingly supportive board and they were fantastic. So in the end, we went where we went to the, we went to the company that had the best offer in terms of it was taking the most advantage of especially our developers' skill sets. Um, and I think you feel in the Valley a responsibility to your development team above all else. Um, and the the rest of us that were more on the design side, um, you know, we, could, we can choose to go somewhere else if we want to, but... Um, what we really wanted was to find a place where everyone was going to thrive and be happy and feel like they're working on interesting problems. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. So today you're currently working at Hasso Plattner Institute of Design at Stanford, and you actually have your own consulting firm called Kick-Ass Enterprises. Great mm-hmm. name, by the way. Thank um, you. There you teach a course on designing creative organization. In a nutshell, what is the process you follow to help design better organizations? So you're referring to the D school. Most people know of the Hassel Plattner Institute of Design at Stanford as the D school. Mm-hmm. And um, the class I, I have taught, Designing Creative Organizations, was the first one of its kind um, at the D school. And I taught it, it was a team taught class that I taught with um, partners 
uh, one of whom was Justin Farrell, who was the founder or the, the director of the D School Fellows program. D School Fellows were the main kind of audience for that class. We also had some night fellows. And the D School Fellows are people who are selected out of hundreds, um, who are mid-career professionals, usually who have launched their own startup or nonprofit or social enterprise. And so that course was about you know, learning to use design thinking to design better organizations, as you said. So what's the process? Um, you know, that class and, and I <laughs> share a perspective that uh, the best way to do design is to understand all of your users. So then this is very similar to what I do in my consulting practice, which is where I spend most of my time. You follow a process of observation, interpretation, ideation, selection, prototyping, testing, and then you iterate through that whole entire process. And what makes that really different is it's not just based on theory of, you know, you read a management book and you say, okay, this is how we should all be organized. All of us have been subjected to consultants who take that approach. Um, there is no one best approach for designing an organization. The best kind of organizational design is a design that is aligned with your strategy and takes advantage of your people's strengths, including the people that you want to be working there, not just necessarily the ones who are. So you're trying to build a, build a team of people who have exactly the right strengths to deliver the value that you, wanted to, what you want to deliver in the world. There's a lot of variables there. So again, it comes back to like, it's so important to have that anchor that you are just steadfastly attached to, and it's either the mission or the vision. So if you know what your vision is in the world, you can design a number of strategies that would help you achieve that vision. And then for every one of those strategies, there are several possible ways to organize your team. Does that answer your question? It sure does. <laughs> so just building on that, would you say that organizations and especially startups should just refocus their attentions on their missions as they approach these different phases uh, or stages of growth to find themselves and overcome some of these organizational growth challenges? It's a good question. Uh, the stage of start, I mean, the stage of any company is really, really an important consideration. I think everything should be passed through the lens of your, your mission. You know, your mission in, in other, in other settings, you know, you'd call it even your brand. Um, if, if you're doing anything that doesn't pass the test of this aligns with my mission or this aligns with my brand, then you are eventually going to break something or you're going to have a lot of conflict. So yes, you should always pass it through that, but that is not enough, right? Because there's a lot of humanity involved here. And, and as you referenced stages of companies, a kind of stage that I often work with is um, when there's like, a, there's a few breaking points in the early stage of a startup. So when you move from like 40 to 60 employees, mm -hmm. and then when you move from like a hundred to 150, 175, like you see this, these big shifts in the way that people need to be organized and the way process needs to work and how incentives need to be structured. Um, it does seem to go from the earlier you are, like the looser things should be, the later you are, the more bureaucracy you need to maintain transparency. So 
it, it does totally depend on the stage, but looking back at the mission alone is not enough. Like you, there's so much great research on what works in organizations and what doesn't. And one of the problems that you face as a, as a person who teaches organizational behavior, like to MBAs, is that almost every true thing about humans sounds obvious. However, the opposite thing about humans would also sound just as true and just as obvious. So, you know, if I tell you freedom is great for creativity, you'd say, well, of course, that makes sense because, and then we can think of a million reasons why. If I tell you constraints great for creativity, of course, that makes sense because, and then I can think of a million reasons why. The difference is the data. Which one does the data support? Yeah. And so it really is important to work with somebody who knows that research and who knows what does work and has worked in the past and not just to lead by gut. I mean, I can't think of a more important place where you'd want an expert to weigh in than on how you're going to organize your company and your team. Like if your team is not operating and your company cannot execute on strategy or cannot set an effective strategy, you are not going to survive. Or, and you're certainly not going to outcompete your competitors once you're in that mature of a market. So the ability to predict what humans are going to do is extraordinarily valuable. And it feels, it feels soft and squishy, but if you can predict something soft and squishy and your competitors can't, you're going to win. So it's a place where like, yes, you look back at your mission, you talk to some experts, you try to get informed about what has worked before. Um, you test and iterate and observe. Cool. Thank you. So what is the most important piece of advice you'd share with founders or early stage startups about user experience design research? Limit your hypotheses. Prioritize. You can't test everything at once. So is there like a number that you would limit to or just? No, it, the number depends on how, how much uh, statistical power you can get and how much time, how, many, how much bandwidth, like you know, computational and cognitive bandwidth you have to like understand your results. It depends on how sharp your hypotheses are to begin with. Um, I think that you should never jump into a quantitative uh, UX research project without doing qualitative first, because qualitative has such, so quickly and so dramatically will refine your hypotheses to something that's actually like likely to be true. Um, it's not enough. Like you never know if, if you have a true idea of, of what your, your users will do based just on qualitative research. But if you have not done qualitative research, you are really stabbing in the dark. And no, no amount of number, like numerical uh, coincidence will really inform you about where to go next. You can't test everything. And this is like a, I hear this a lot these days because um, we have really fallen in love in, in the whole world and especially in the startup world. We have really fallen in love with this idea that data and big data are going to save us from having to make uh, decisions under uncertainty. Not true. All data tell you something, you just don't know what it's telling you. You're always measuring something, but it might not be what you, th what you thought you wanted to measure. So if you just go in and you're blindly listening to like data and looking for spurious correlations, you could really get misled. And it's very important to like have a, a deep, authentic understanding of your users and what their motivations and desires are in order to have good hypotheses about that are testable on a quantitative scale. You brushed up on this a little bit earlier in the in the recording, but what is your take on design thinking? Is it a practice that you follow at, at your consulting firm, Kickass Enterprises? Absolutely. Uh, you can't. I, I can't separate um, 
design thinking is, is, is so like such a deep kind of belief or um, approach. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's an approach I so deeply believe in that I could never separate it from any kind of work I do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's absolutely something that I do at Kick-Ass. Um, a lot of, you know, a lot of the, the work I do that's on the organizational design front takes place in almost what feels like a brainstorming session setting. So I'll meet with a leadership team and we will brainstorm our way into a pretty good working theory of what the strategy should be or how we should grow or what the culture should look like. And I use those kind of uh, brainstorming and creativity methods in that way. And then we have something that we can test and then we break it down into um, prototypable uh, tests or hypotheses. And we see what works because I, I don't know what's going to work. Um, I, I, can have a, I can have a better hunch than somebody who doesn't spend their time studying this. But um, the proof is in the pudding. You know, you have to see, like, how is, this, how is this going to result in the results that you're looking for? So, yes, it's totally part of my approach. So what will we see um, from Kick-Ass Enterprises in 2015? Are you working on any interesting companies or projects? I am. Um, I'm working with a, a really fascinating mission-driven company right now um, in the financial space, consumer financial space. They're called Aspiration.com. They just launched um, about a month ago. Uh, invite only right now, but if your guests would like to get in touch with me, I can see what I can do about getting them higher up on the waiting list. Um, and Aspiration is an investment firm that gives people the option to do well and do good. Um, so they are designed with much like a Tom's or a Warby Parker type of a model. The, the customer decides how much in fees they want to give to the investment firm. JP Morgan would never let you do that. Um, you decide how much you want to give in fees and then 10% of the fees always go to charity. And you can also weigh in on the, the charity that you want that money to go to. It's pretty cool. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an investment firm that is built for regular people for the middle class. Um, but it uses a lot of the strategies and, uh, investment vehicles that previously only millionaires had access to. So they've jumped through a ton of regulatory hoops, which is very impressive. Um, so things like, you know, hedge funds and alternative investments, this, this gives you access to those things so that you can lower your volatility. So I'm working with them. Um, I, we're seeing like amazing results so far at the very early stages of their growth. So looking forward to seeing what's happening there. And then I'm spending a lot of time, um, with content and trying to, you know, get back to putting my own ideas out there in the world again. And I'm having a baby. That's Baby awesome. number Congrats. two. Yeah, so that's the big thing coming out of Kick-Ass <laughs> Enterprises. <laughs> Hopefully not too big. And and oh, also I moved to Los Angeles. So I'm in a new I'm in a very different setting um than San Francisco three weeks ago. Yeah, absolutely. So, wow. so big, big things move. in twenty fifteen. Yeah. So um with all that being said, um, you know, are there any technologies or industries that that really interest you if you were to kind of start a, a different startup or advise, you know, uh, entrepreneurs on where they should go build their next big thing? Uh where where would that be? Uh video production democratized. I think video is one of the most powerful mediums for social change. Um you don't need to know how to read to know how to watch a video, and I would love to see the production side 
because distribution has already been largely democratized by YouTube, Vimeo, and so forth. The smartphones that are now increasingly affordable, even in the developing world, I used to work with, um, I did some work with Mozilla as a consultant, helping them with their um, $25 smartphone that is huge in the developing world. And uh, for a lot of people, their first the first time they ever touch the internet is on this phone. That's like crazy. to me, that's like so awesome. It's on a, I mean, it's, it's on a phone. Like it's, that's not what our first experience was. And, and um, so I want to, I want to see like beyond distribution being democratized. I want to see production getting democratized even more and especially the effective storytelling part of it so that, you know, a, a pregnant woman in Uganda can make a video about the things that are affecting her life so that everybody can share their ideas. So that's a thing I really believe in and I want to see happen. Um, and then the sharing economy. So I'm an environmentalist. Um, I really try not to buy things much like um, Lloyd Dobler and say anything. I try not to do anything bought, sold, or processed. Um, I don't want to buy anything sold, bought. I don't want to process anything sold or bought. I don't want to process, you know. So. I, I don't want to add stuff into the landfill, as I mentioned before. And mm -hmm. so when I'm picking startups to work with, like, I am not interested in ad tech. I'll just say that right now. I don't want to make people want stuff they don't need. But things that can help people get done the business of daily life without buying stuff, now I'm really interested. So I love Get Around, um, which is a car sharing service. Yep. Uh, based in San Francisco. I had my Fiat up on Get Around while I lived there from about August until I moved away last month. And I made $1,000 while I wasn't using my car anyway. And people would make sure I was parked on the side of the street where I wasn't going to get a ticket. And if ever an issue came up, like someone forgot to refill my gas tank once, Get Around refunded me. And it's a fantastic service. You don't even have to meet with the person who's renting your car. Um, they install a little thing that lets you, that lets the renter, once they're verified and they've paid, they can open your car with a cell phone. Yeah. So it's like super scalable. It's great. Yeah. I can't wait until they have that um, more supported in LA, but uh, I really believe in the sharing economy. So I want to see that happen. And then lastly, like these big, in, big industries that are ripe for disruption, education, healthcare, finance. Mm -hmm. Um want to see that happen. There's a lot of value that's being either held onto or not delivered. And these are things that we all need. All of us need all of these things and they make the world a better place. So um, that's why I work on those kinds of products. That's awesome. Yeah. I know you mentioned Get Around and they're a pretty cool company. It's actually a small world. Both the co-founders are from Ottawa where, where I'm based. So. <laughs> oh, awesome. Yeah. Have to have more good uh, stuff in Canada, so much good stuff in Canada. <laughs> well, it's building so it out there anyway. I, I wish that they would bring it to Ottawa as well. So maybe one day, yeah, one day, <laughs> hopefully. So, what apps, books, devices, or tools are you obsessed with right now? You had mentioned Get Around. So, what is are there any others? Yes, I love Stitch Fix. Mm -hmm. Stitch Fix delivers my clothes to me so that I don't have to shop for them on my own. Um, I like to think I have style, but I really hate shopping and I don't have too much time for it, but I love clothes. So with Stitch Fix, I fill out a style profile and then they send me a box of clothes um, that I can pick from every, I have it set up the most frequent you can get it, which is every three weeks. And it has been such a big boost to my quality of life. Like I love having a new item or two 
um, or six, you know, <laughs> every month. And it's very affordable. Um, the stylists really listen to what you're looking for. They even have maternity clothes, which is very smart because otherwise you lose all women at some point mm -hmm. and then they have to have time to sign up again, which once you have a baby, you don't. So it's great. It's great for working moms. It's great for, it's great for everyone. Um, I just finally got stuck into Asana. I signed up right when they launched years ago and I couldn't get hooked. And, um, my assistant uses it and said she liked it. And I thought I'm going to give it another go and then I can collaborate with her. And I, love it. There are still a couple features I think it's missing, but it's a task. It's basically a task management system. It's super collaborative. Um, it does almost everything you want it to, but what I miss about things, which I used to use was I could add tasks to things using Siri. Um, so I didn't even have to open the app. I could just say, remind me to, and then I could say the task and it would show up on my list. So that was great, but it wasn't collaborative enough. And then lastly, I just switched over to Android three weeks ago because my contract was up. And it was important to me that I not only live in a different part of the state and switch, you know, everything about my life, but I also had to switch my phone. So I couldn't even figure out how to use my phone for a day. Um, <laughs> but I'm learning the Android system and I, it's like long overdue. I'm ashamed that it took me this long and I love it. I love how the people first... say that they have to learn the Android system. I find it, it's almost exactly the same as the iPhone. Anyway, <laughs> there's a few minor workflows, but anyway. It's more just, yeah, it's, it's building that like intuition about the way that the whole thing is organized and, and also like breaking you out of all of these like Confined. boxes that yeah. Apple had you in before that you didn't realize you were in. And um, the thing that, I'm, that I still haven't figured out is like how to receive my husband's text messages. It's very frustrating. So like in a group text, like he doesn't, I don't get his messages. I only get the other people's, which is super inconvenient, That's kind but of weird. <laughs> working on that. But yeah, I love, I love, I have a Samsung note for, I, tr I went to a lecture, um, by a psychologist from UCLA the other night. I decided to give the stylus note taking a try. I took notes in Evernote with my stylus. I did not miss my paper notebook that was sitting right under the phone. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I am a huge paper note taker. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm really pleased. It's pretty cool. I've, I've been a pretty much a lifelong Android user and really, really like it. So there you go. Welcome to the club. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> um, so are there any last uh, thoughts or personal models that you have that you think others should know about? Well, my favorite quote is from Dolly Parton, and I will share that. I think it's really appropriate for your audience, um, which is figure out who you are and then do it on purpose. It's an awesome quote. And um, I, someone... I don't know. I, I Someone was interviewing me last week and asked me about my career. People often have this strange idea that they should ask me, that they should try to somehow like do what I'm doing and get a PhD and then leave academia and then go work at startups. And I'm like, that is not a smart plan. Don't do that. <laughs> because it's, you know, it's just, it's, it's a really costly windy road. Like it's not necessary. If you know, if you know you want to work in startups, my God, do not get a PhD before unless it's in co computer science. Anyway, um, I, I think like the, the best things I've done in my career have not been anything about planning where I was going. That's not a personal strength of mine. The best things I've done for my career have been to go to parties, hang out with my friends, leave the job market and go live in Europe for a while, read books that had nothing to do with anything I was working on. And I'm a really serious person. Like I tend to, I tend to work 
all of the time. I tend to work on the stuff I'm working on all the time. But what I, when I look back, like I find that it's been the fun that has always been what paid off. The connections that I have that are authentic because I, I spent, you know, all night dancing with somebody, those are the things that turn into jobs. It's not like some stupid networking event I went to or a career fair, my God. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's when you follow your bliss and, and like you just own and you own who you are. So I try to be as enough of myself that I can offend away some of the people that wouldn't like me once they got to know me. That's, that's awesome. That's incredibly authentic and, and some great advice. Well, thank you. This has been really fun. Yeah, thank you so much for, for being on the show today, uh, Keneal. It was great having you. It was an amazing, an amazing episode. And I would love to invite any of your guests who live in Southern California to um, get in touch with me. And um, I'm trying to do a series of coffees up and down the, you know, LA coastal area um, and in Hollywood to get to know people who are working on interesting things or have interesting aspirations. So you can... Uh, direct message me or, you know, ping me on, on Twitter. Um, my Twitter handle is my first name, Keneal, C-A-N-E-E-L. Yeah, we'll provide a link too. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank, Thank you. you. Well, that's about it for this episode of Hack to Start. You can find all the important links beneath the show. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Hack to Start and sign up for our newsletter to know about all the latest episodes, behind the scenes content, and more. Thanks for listening and see you next time.